Our scripture this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. My friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship today. I hope that you were able to discern the lyrics, all the lyrics to that song, the choir just beautifully presented to us, for it's almost as evocative as the text read to us, as we got to hear it read by Sarah, we got to hear it sung by our choir. And Dr. Calvin on the organ with some incredible instrument, instrument whatever, he played an instrument. <laughs> Thank you so much for your artistic portrayal of the scriptures. Would you please join your heart with mine in prayer? And before you do, I want you to take a deep inhale and exhale so that when you breathe in again, you'll sense you're breathing in the very breath of God. Breathe in. Exhale all your air. Breathe in the breath of God. God of life and love, we come here together as your people. We come here to sit and do work together, to stand and do work together, to sing and do work together. We come to do the work that only we can do together, to practice liturgy, to listen to your sacred text, all in an effort that you and your Holy Spirit would form us more into the image and likeness of your Son, Christ, our Savior. God, we ask that you meet us here in this place, and we ask specifically now here and everywhere people can hear my voice that your Holy Spirit would walk with us. For you and I know that without you I can do nothing. We ask that your Spirit come as a guide and friend to navigate us along the way teaching us all of your comings and goings and all the ways that you would have us live according to your pilgrim path. It is in Christ's holy name we pray and God's people say together, amen. Sometimes you don't know the noise that's going on all around you until that noise is no longer there. I remember where I was, I bet you do too, on September the 11th, 2001. I can recall watching it on television. 
I had just gotten out of theology class, an early morning theology class as I prepared for ministry. And I watched with a friend of mine for several hours on television, watching all the horrific images. We had to take a break. Fortunately, a new album, a new CD had dropped in the store and my buddy wanted to get it, so we took a break to go get that CD. We had learned along the way that there would be no airplanes flying in U.S. airspace that day, and maybe for some days to come. I can't quite recall. But I never really thought about how eerie it was that there were no planes in the sky until there were no planes in the sky. And then to make things even more eerie, I finally heard a plane. You see, I was in Oklahoma City, right next to Tinker Air Force Base, and they were scrambling the fighter jets to fly patrol over our airspace between Oklahoma City and Chicago and back. That's how fast those babies can fly. And when you're not supposed to hear an airplane in the sky, and then you hear an airplane in the sky, it sends a shiver down your spine. Oh, I know, as soon as I brought up 9-11, your imaginations and your memories started percolating with all kinds of feelings from that time. I bet you can recall asking the question, what now? What happens next? All of our biographies are gilded with moments in history that we can think back on and know exactly where we were, where we had to ask the question, what now? Perhaps in the 20th century, America faced no greater situation like that than when one of our very own presidents was assassinated in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. As it's been told to me by not only the countless documentaries I've watched on it, but by people who were alive and watching at the time, that our country sat together not only in mourning, but in great fear. What happens next? Oh, I know we have procedures and policies as a country for in the unlikely event that a president would die in office. There's even scholars who have committed their scholarship to lines of succession, but still when it happens, you go, what now? Where do we go from here? Will we get through this in one piece? Are we on the brink of war? We ask these questions in uncertain times, and as Isaiah the prophet begins his ministry, it is an uncertain time. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 begins with this phrase, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Don't let that phrase go past you. That's a big deal. Death in the monarchy. I believe that King Uzziah was king for some 50-odd years. He wasn't a president for a couple of years in a term. He was a king, a monarch, for decades. And in the year of his death, that's the year that Isaiah was called into ministry. Tough year. It happened by way of a vision. He was in the temple, 
There are these angelic beings called seraphs or seraphim, and they have six wings. They cover their faces, and they fly, and they cover other body parts, symbolizing the purity and holiness of the space. And they sing this holy song that literally says, holy, holy, holy to God. And they sing with such grandiosity that the temple thresholds shake. Oh, it's evocative as an image. You can almost feel it right down in your chest cavity. And then there's smoke. There's an altar up front, something like a a holy altar of sacrifice. Perhaps it smelled of incense. I wonder if Isaiah had to cough and catch his breath as smoke filled the sanctuary that day. And then, then there's the Lord seated high and lofty on the throne with the train of his robe filling the entire temple. I have done a lot of weddings here at Peachtree Christian Church. And I've seen a lot of trains. I had one gal told me, I'm going to have the same train as Princess Diana. It made it pretty far down the center aisle. But it didn't fill this whole space. In the glory and the grandeur of God, all the senses are absolutely pushed to the max. It is there like a great spotlight that all the cracks in the interior life of Isaiah are made plain to himself. And all he can say is, woe is me, I'm ruined. It's like walking into a space that is so brightly lit up that you can see everywhere where you have dirt on you. Woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. Now, let me cut to the chase. I don't know what that exactly means. Was he uttering Hebrew dirty words? Probably not, because the Bible is filled with words like that. Just That's a little inside ballgame knowledge for you. Was he a gossip? Probably, because most people are gossips. A lot of scholars think he might have had an idolatrous language about him. I don't know exactly what it was. But there was something about his mouth, his speech, the way he talked, that was not glorifying to God, and so he had to call it out. And then one of these angelic creatures goes to this altar of sacrifice and takes a hot coal and touches his lips. forgiving him, atoning for the sinfulness of Isaiah. And just like that, Isaiah is called again. Because God, who sits high and lofty on the throne, says, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah stands and says, here I am, Lord, send me. Now, It may not shock you to know that preachers and seminarians love this passage of Scripture. Why? Because it's all about that calling at the end. If you're in a profession or vocation, more to the point, that has a sense of call to it, you lean into this text. You feel like there's something more than a desire for a paycheck or a career You feel called. You feel as though God has asked that question, who will be my person for this task? And and if you've taken up the call, you feel like you've probably said, here I am, send me. 
I was at a friend's ordination service once, and it was filled with professors and people who were higher up at this church, and there was a profound and bold speaker speaking not just to the congregation, but directly to the ordinand. And he looked at this person, my friend, and said, Do you have unclean lips? I remember feeling nervous for him when he was asked. I was glad it was a rhetorical question. And then he looked at my friend in the face and he said, God says, who will go for him? Will you go? And it was part of the ceremony for him to say, I will go. Yeah, we love this passage because of that. I'm convinced that there are, should be a large segment of our population troubled by this passage. I think most, not just Americans, but Westerners ought to read this and maybe have some questions because I don't know if you remember it or not, but Isaiah doesn't simply confess his own sin, which I think we're all cool with that. We're all cool with the fact that we're responsible for ourselves. At least we should be, right? Right? Okay. But then he says, I'm from a people of unclean lips. He doesn't simply confess his own sin. He confesses the sins of his community. He confesses the sins of his people, alive and dead. I've heard people talk about race in our culture a lot, and I've heard people get defensive about it and say things like, I never held slaves. It's true. It is true that I don't know anybody that's held slaves. And so, in terms of our individual responsibility, we're not quite responsible for that aspect of the history. But I was really fascinated watching uh, Finding Your Roots on PBS one night. Dr. Henry Louis Gates. I wish I had enough money or prestige to be on Finding Your Roots, because he's got a whole team of people that go and do all this genealogical research on you, and you get the best quality stuff. And he usually does high-profile people on the show, and it's usually filled with emotion because people find out that there's someone in their family who'd sacrificed a lot for them to live. Sometimes people find out that their great-grandfather wasn't really their great-grandfather, but somebody who took in a stranger. They find out remarkable things. Ted Danson was invited by Dr. Gates to turn the family tree book and then to scroll to a certain part of it and read, and he found out that one of his ancestors held slaves. And I was curious at his tears. He began to cry, feeling responsible for something people did generations ago. Now, I'm not telling you how to feel about that. What I am saying is if that makes sense to you or if that's curious to you, well, perhaps you would find some curiousness with the text. Because Isaiah is not simply stopping with his own sin. He confesses the sins of his nation. See, we in the Western world start with the worldview of individualism and autonomy first. We think of self first and work our way out. The ancients, to get a hold of how to understand the Old Testament people of God, they were much more communitarian than we are today. And so they thought about the entire community first that makes up the individual. Oh. I think seminarians love this passage because it makes us feel excited about going out and calling. I think 
our wider culture reads this and gets a little queasy over Isaiah's confession. But what's the most powerful part? I confess that I used to love this passage as my favorite passage in the Bible, probably because I was a seminarian at one point, hoping to be called by God. And my old mentor pulled me aside when I was talking about this, and he said, hey, what do you think is the most powerful, poignant part of the text? And so I went to all those evocative images in my mind. I thought, about, maybe it's the threshold of the temple shaking. I surmised that maybe shaking the temple, the house of God, might have been powerful. Or maybe it's the songs, or maybe it's the smoke. Maybe it's the forgiveness of sin that the coal symbolizes. He just shook his head at me and he said these words in the year that King Uzziah died. He saw the confusion on my face. Why would such mundane historical words, just telling you where you are in time, why would they be powerful when you have this profound vision of God? It's because this, my friends. In the year that the king died, after reigning for decades, and not just any king, the first, like, good king in a long, long, long while. You had bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. You had idolatry after idolatry after idolatry. You had Lack of trust after lack of trust after lack of trust. You've had injustice and injustice and injustice. And finally, you have a good king, a decent king, someone that you can actually trust. For five decades. And in the year he died. In the year that you might be afraid of what's going to happen next. And the year when you can't see so clearly who's to come and what life will look like tomorrow. In a year that you're afraid, in a year when you're confused, in a year when you're saying, where do we go from here? In a year like that, God speaks. God still speaks. And this is the context for all of Isaiah's ministry. All this uncertainty is the context for his vocation. It begins with God speaking. I know that if you've been tracking with any of the sermons I've preached for these past two years, you're probably tired of hearing the word COVID or coronavirus or pandemic or social unrest or anger. Because those words often fill my sermons and most preachers' sermons throughout these two years. There's good reason for it. Because we've been living through it. It's been the state of affairs for everyone. It's been a time of fear for tomorrow. A time of uncertainty. A time of great anger. It has been a time of pain. It has been a time of loneliness. It's been a time of death. And I believe in a time like that, God still speaks. I believe in the moments where we sit up at night going, where do we go from here? God still 
speaks. Do you believe that God is still speaking? Oh, I know. I know you probably, like me, would like for it to be really plain. You'd like to have a vision like Isaiah. Just so you can be really clear on the uncertainties, decisions you have to make. You probably want the heavens to open and for God to say, go and do this as plain as day. Or maybe you'd like to have a dream where you get a PowerPoint presentation from the good Lord with a step-by-step process on how to be faithful and go to the next place you're supposed to go to and do what you're supposed to do. Let's make it real simple, Lord. If you're like me, it hasn't been that simple. I have not had the vision like Isaiah's vision. But it does call to mind something important for us today. It doesn't tell us in this text that that every person in the people of God have this vision. It tells us that Isaiah is given this vision. So here's the point. In all this uncertainty, God still speaks. And what does God use to speak more often than not? People. God uses us to speak to one another. Bonhoeffer reminds us that sometimes the Christ in the heart of your brother or sister is stronger than the Christ in your own heart. So it is a profound thing to look at a brother or sister in Christ in the eyes and say, do you know that you are forgiven? Sometimes we speak God to people when we do that. Sometimes it's by calling people up and saying, I need to have a word with you. You're discouraged. There are grand cases of speaking truth to power, sure. All too often what God does is he equips people like Isaiah. He asks them, who's going to go on my behalf and speak my goodness and my love to people? Who's going to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the church people are the people who are supposed to say, here I am. Send me. I have children nine seven and two and if you have children or grandchildren i'm betting you've seen this new movie called encanto or maybe you're just a disney freak and you love encanto and watch it for that reason let me show of hands who's seen encanto who's going to get my illustration so some of you will and some of you won't try to hang with me for those of you who won't have not seen encanto the music's all made by uh, done by lin-manuel miranda so if you like that kind of thing you're going to love it It's a wonderful story about this family in Colombia after the troubles, the historical troubles of violence that they had. There's a family who, through an act of love, received some sort of enchantment or magic. I don't know why, but each person in that family has a gift, a magical gift, and and they all live in one home in this small community together, and the house itself is enchanted. It's, It's magical. It's almost... Hmm. Each person has a gift that belongs with the other people, and when you use them together, it's for a better purpose than for each individual gift. Sounds like something else I know. The body of Christ. Well, along the way, one of the grandchildren is born and doesn't have this gift, and she's ashamed that she doesn't have magic and It seems that the magic is kind of collapsing away around them. And there's this point in the song 
towards the end, there's a song called uh, All of You. There's a, re there's a realization that the magic and the gift of each person isn't necessarily magic. It's something else deep inside of them. And there's this moment where they begin to sing to each other in the shambles of their home as they're losing what think they think makes them special to the whole town. And it goes something like this. The grandmother singing, hears a noise and she says, what's that sound? And the little girl says, I think it's everyone in town. Hey. And then you see all the people in town walking up with their toolboxes and they're singing to the magical family, lay down your load, lay down your load. We're only down the road. We're only down the road. We have no gifts, but we are many, and we'll do anything for you. I know it's a silly Disney movie, but when I watch that part, I get teary thinking that's the church. We all live in moments of difficulty, uncertainty, fear, what have you. God is still speaking. And God is saying, who's going to take that message with you? You and I, we may not be magical. There's many of us. Hopefully together we say, here we are. Send us.